Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise. Very excited to welcome Josh Wolf, founder and managing director of Lux Capital. Thanks so much for joining us today, Josh. Great to be with you. Great. So Josh, to kick us off, we'd love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. You know, I started out growing up in Coney Island, Brooklyn. Mom wanted me to be a doctor. I was more interested in science. I ended up entering one of these science competitions early on, which was the Westinghouse Science Competition, which I think eventually became IBM, Siemens, I think is now Regeneron. It unfortunately, I think, is usually predictive of some decline in whichever company ends up sponsoring it, but it's also reasonably predictive of good scientific talent. I was 13 years old at the time. I must have been a between freshman and sophomore of a high school growing up in, in Brooklyn. You go out and you try to find a lab. I had seen, I think, in the ensuing prior year, the movie and the band played on, which was nominally about the AIDS crisis. And I was obsessed with the idea that I was going to go into this field and find a cure for AIDS. That was my life ambition as a 13-year-old boy in Brooklyn. I ended up knocking on the doors of lots of labs. Everybody turned me away. And there was one guy who turned me away, but I was very persistent. And that was a guy, Dominic Ossie, who was a PhD researcher in immunopathology at SUNY Downstate. And I wouldn't take no for an answer. Started working in that lab. And what's interesting is in the course of doing that, we were working on urokinase and protease inhibitors and uh, ended up publishing, became a semifinalist. But more important was the trajectory that it sent me on. Because while we're waiting for a centrifuge of AIDS blood to spin down, he was trading futures and options and making tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, wait a second, what, what, what is this stuff that you're doing? I got enamored with capital markets. I didn't know anything about a stock, a bond, equity, sales and trading, investment banking, and was very lucky that he gave me a, an education. I think the first thing was a Wall Street Journal guide to money investing, the kind of thing that you get when you are you know, basically a new subscriber. And it was my early education to capital markets and became obsessed with the idea that you might be able to find a career doing a mix of science and finance. And that was my path. I went into investment banking after graduating from Cornell. It was molecular bio and finance undergrad. Hated investment banking. It was just so uninspiring. And then the dot-com boom and bust had come, and we decided that we were going to start a venture firm that was focused on these really cutting-edge areas at the intersection between disciplines. So biotech meets material science or computer science and bio. And, and that became the basis for Lux and have never looked back now, almost two decades. Great, Josh. And as you think about biotech investing now, and let's say for some of the folks that are listening that are perhaps aspiring to be biotech investors, have you picked up any traits and think, you know, not at the partner level, but at the associate level, have you picked up any experiences or traits in those types of folks that are interested that you wanted to call out here? I would say the number one thing is truly obsessive passionate interest, curiosity, an instinct for the new and the novel, an instinct for being able to distinguish between the silver-tongued scientist who might be just you know promoting the heck out of something and somebody that is really credible and peer-respected. And you develop that instinct over time. I learned when we were starting locks from a guy named Larry Bach. Larry has since passed away. Larry was like employee number 50 at Genentech. We met when he was putting together a company called Nanosys, which was sort of at the intersection of biotech and electronics. And he was licensing work from Harvard and MIT and UC Berkeley. And I became obsessed with his obsession for this area. And we became small investors in that company very early on. And then he ended up becoming a partner at Lux until he passed away now almost 10 years, but just an incredible guy who knew how to put companies together. He was obsessive. He was passionate. He would read science and nature, proceedings of the National Academy of Science, chemical and engineering news. He would go deep into the literature and he would go to the PIs, the principal investigators, and just learn from them. 
And his goal was with each conversation that he had with a PI academic or PhD researcher is to learn a little bit from them so that the next subsequent conversation he had, he was able to have more credibility and it was just sort of snowball and compound. And then he was able to convince them, and this was the real key, that they oftentimes might be working on something in contemporaneous areas. So multiple people having the same sort of discovery or interest. And he was able to convince them to all be part of one company instead of starting five or six you know, different redundant companies. And I think that was one of his, his true skills. People looked at him, called him historically this mensch on a mission. He was just a good guy with good ethics. He was a partner with a guy, Kevin Kinsella, who in the 90s, the two of them had started Avalon Ventures and done multiple companies where they would actually form the companies de novo from scratch. So they would incorporate it. They would license the intellectual property from university uh, or government lab, but usually the former. They would serve as the interim CEO until they could fire themselves and bring on great talent. They would form a syndicate of venture investors and develop those relationships of people who thought their judgment around science, scientists were high. And then they would parlay that and just do it time and time again. Larry himself founded 17 companies from scratch, 14 went public, cumulative market capital for 50 billion, Illumina was the most significant, but Pharmacopia, Neuroprin, Athena, Idun, et cetera, and just left this beautiful wake of people in his path. And, and we were some of them. So we learned how to do company formation. You know, I know you've had experience as well at the flagship and elsewhere in doing that. And it's very rewarding, you know, whether it works or doesn't, you get to work with some of the smartest people in the world, pushing the boundary of what is possible in science. And uh, we, to this day, continue to do new codes in everything from neuroscience to digital olfaction, to the gut-brain axis, to visual phenotypic discovery of drugs, to crazy microscopes that are letting you see inside of real-time cells. I mean, the entire gamut is something we're really passionate about. And what percentage of your capital are you expending towards venture creation versus traditional venture investing and backing other entrepreneurs? So our latest pool of capital, which is a billion five, we managed 4 billion in total and it's about 30 people, half New York, half Menlo Park, although we operate as we call it Unomalox, One Lux. Everybody's a generalist, although there are certain passion areas that people have. We end up with a portfolio in each fund of about 30 core positions. And then we also have a large seed experiment and optionality program. So we're investing in lots of small companies and seeing if they might convert into a core position. About a quarter of those companies, so figure between, you know, six and 10 or so are companies that we will originate de novo. We will start with a principal investigator. We will do the work to negotiate the license from university. We will uh, serve as the interim founding CEO, put together the syndicate, many of the things that we learned from Larry Bach in you know, his old Avalon days and have sort of carried forth with a, a more modern tinge on it. And we will do that in lots of areas. So biotech is one core area. We do it in other adjacent areas, but we really, we really love doing that. And, and typically in each fund, it's about you know, 20, 25% of it. So in many ways now, we're in this golden age of scientific innovation, if you will, across a biotech. Lots of exciting advancements, the application of software, things like target validation, drug discovery, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also been tons of change in both the public and private markets as it relates to biotech. Before we jump into where you think the industry is going, we'd love uh, if you could give us a lay of the land in terms of biotech investing, where we are now and, and what's changed. So you have your classic biotech investors, which you know are basically looking at early compounds, potential platforms if they don't know what the end markets or indications are going to be, and you know they'll call it a platform company. Oftentimes, that's an a priori admission. We're not sure what's going to be the most important indication. And there are people that are really excellent at that. What's interesting over the past decade and increasingly now is you're having a phenomenon instead of biotech of what some are calling tech bio, where you are having classical computer scientists that are entering the field. And I always love when you have this sort of interstitial overlapping magisteria, these different disciplines where they're bumping up against each other. Now, what ends up happening is hardcore biotech and, and medicinal chemists don't know anything about computer science. And computer scientists might assume that biology is just like, you know, systems biology, we'll just turn it into uh, genetic circuits. 
and both are wrong, right? Or, or, or misunderstand each other. So what you really need are great translational people between them and not just, you know, translational chemists, but translational leaders who are able to point out the virtue of computational geneticists and let them understand what the people that are actually doing actual cell cultures are doing and, and the virtue of both of those things. So I think the most interesting discoveries the most interesting competitive advantages that companies are gaining, the most interesting interest from big pharma to partner with companies is increasingly coming at that nexus between hardcore biology and hardcore computer science and the nexus between the two. That leaves you with a landscape of everything from people that are doing you know, new chemical entities and compound discovery to people that are using uh, ML and AI, machine learning and artificial intelligence to go through large data sets, people that are collecting data sets from novel techniques. Some people might be using computer vision to look at phenotypic expression on cells. Some people might be doing it from uh, libraries of RNA-seq or gene sequences. Some people might be looking at it at GWAS or population genetics. There's lots of different ways that people are collecting data. Then you have people that are looking at the experimental design. And I know you guys at Clora are thinking constantly about, you know, how do you make the industry more efficient and give the talent and the human capital piece? There's the actual physical capital piece, which is permeating the industry and evolving in really interesting ways. And what I mean by that is it was always a given that you would either build a lab or you would go into like an Alexandria space, you know, historically, and you would run your biotech company there. And either you were laying out a lot of money for the CapEx to do that and build wet lab space and potential vivariums and to animal experiments, or you were leasing or renting that from somebody. Increasingly, I think you will see a trend and you're seeing lots of indications for this of the software that is coming out of companies like Benchling or LatchBio or the automation that is coming out of companies like Stratios, where you will have labs being conducted in the cloud in the same way that you saw this in the tech industry. And the tech industry went from people buying servers and racks and equipment and building it on-prem, doing it themselves, to suddenly saying, wait a second, Amazon is constantly updating this. We can shift this from a CapEx decision, which is really expensive and huge outlay of cash, to an OpEx decision where you are basically just sort of leasing or renting the time. It changes the economics. It increases the number of companies that could do this. It makes it more efficient. And that's, you know, you saw the same thing in tech where all these companies exploded in a positive way. You know, you got this Cambrian explosion of possibilities. Most of the things, of course, you know, like a Permian extinction will fail, but you get lots of new company experiments being formed. Same thing is going to happen in biotech where people will be able to leverage this infrastructure to do remote work in remote cloud labs. And maybe they're running 20% of their experiments and eventually they'll be running 60% of their experiments. And on top of that, there will be a software layer from computer scientists that are using, again, machine learning and AI to detect patterns, to maybe even reference it to old historic literature that they've unearthed through natural language processing and recommending and generating hypotheses creatively. I think that computers are going to play an increasing co-role with scientists that will unleash the human creativity and untether people from wet benches and white lab coats and let them conduct experiments on the beach in the Bahamas with an iPad. Couldn't agree more, Josh. And I think it's certainly a really exciting time. And I think there's an appetite on the software engineering side now where folks don't necessarily want to work on like the next delivery app, let's say. And particularly given, at least what we've been seeing is particularly given the experiences over the last two, two and a half years where the value proposition of biotech has become so much clearer to so many folks that we've certainly been seeing that folks that are very mission-driven are coming into biotech now, which is, which is great. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you're observing it. And arguably, it sounds a little bit sanctimonious or righteous. It's the way that it should be. People should be working on matter that matters. 
And when you are working on something that is largely defined by the success of what other people believe, this sort of intersubjective view of a dating app, a food delivery thing, a uh, something on retail preference, NFTs, things that are basically dependent upon what other people think that other people believe is very different than objective reality of does this compound work in a human or an animal model? Is this a superior mechanism of action to treat some end indication? And when you actually are connected to something and you're able to say, my gosh, I got to work on something that is saving the Yankee Stadium equivalent of people every day, you know, 75 or 100,000 people. It just, it feels good. It feels good, not only financially, but it feels good when you are at your cocktail party or your Thanksgiving dinner, you're going back home to your folks and they're very proud of what you're doing. It feels good to work on something that is meaningful. So I couldn't agree more that this idea of matter that matters, that people are working on really substantive, pushing the edge of science applications that affect human lives is a way better use of creativity and human talent. Yeah. And, and Josh, I imagine you've likely interacted with and now potentially backed a bunch of founder-led biotechs. And I'm curious what you've observed in terms of what's different when backing that type of founder. And also what perhaps if folks are listening, what folks should think about in terms of how to optimize for success of the company if it's someone's first rodeo and starting a biotech. I think the first thing that comes across and very authentically is whether somebody is a missionary or mercenary. And so they're doing something opportunistically or do they really believe in it? And if they do really believe in it, it's way easier to attract capital, to attract human capital, talent that's going to join you, that believes in the mission that you're on. And so whether that mission is for neurodegenerative disease or a new imaging modality or efficiency in lab automation, whatever it is that you're obsessed with, I think that being a missionary versus a mercenary is the first thing. Being a great storyteller as a founder is really important because by definition, you are almost like a Hollywood, you know, script writer or producer. You're convincing a bunch of people that there's this artistic vision you have of what the world ought to look like or what this company will achieve. And it doesn't exist yet. It might be on paper. You might have some slides, but you have to create credibility. You have to create credulity. And all those words are premised on this Latin root of credere, to believe. You have to create belief. You're not conning people. You're not lying to people, but you're inspiring them. You are leading them. And I think the best founders are able to point to people and say, this is the way that the world should look. Many might consider that arrogance of the highest order, but I consider it super inspiring. We are spinning out a company now, and you're one of the first to hear this, but from a large tech platform, one of the big three, four giants that is focused on a almost lifelong obsession of mine for about 12 years, I've been looking for somebody that could understand both the software and sensor piece of the digitization of the olfaction. Now we've been in companies where we have founded Calliope, which was a company focused on the gut brain access with Richard Axel, who won the Nobel prize for olfaction. Nobody in the past dozen years has really cracked the code, both software and sensors for being able to have a Shazam for smell, for being able to walk into a place and detect the volatile organic compounds, to be able to detect human health from breath, to be able to detect an electrical fire in a server room. I mean, the the vastness of the applications of being able to detect something and know precisely what it is and recording, and then eventually playback is profound. The founder of this company is so obsessive and is such a great storyteller. It makes it very easy to get me to want to part with my money. And it makes it very easy when he reaches out to a candidate to join this mission they hear this and like, oh my God, this is going to be historic. And so I think the advice to founders is be obsessively passionate about what you're doing. Be a missionary, not a mercenary. Be a really good storyteller so that you can lower your cost of capital from investors 
Another way to say that is raise your valuation because demand will be very high and demand will be very high from people that will join your company. Don't just be really good at articulating the science, be really good at telling the story of why this is going to matter to the world. Great advice, Josh. You know, we've often talked on, on this podcast, actually, where you often hear founders that are struggling to raise capital say something productive like, ah, folks just don't get it. And that is the fundamental job of the founder is to make sure that folks get it. So that's great advice, Josh. And, and just to, literally, that is the number one reason when you're like, ah, oh, people just don't understand, right? Yeah. They, they just, they don't grok what I'm selling. But imagine any other product, you know, from Coca-Cola in the stores to, you know, some new taxi. I mean, anything you look around you, everything around you exists because somebody said there's a better way to do it. And I have to persuade people that this is the way. And it is, as you say, the onus of the founder to persuade people, this is the way. Okay, great. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about where you see biotech headed. And I think we, we've talked a little bit about that and what you project for both from a markets perspective, as well as driving operational efficiencies uh, over the next two decades. would love to just hear what's, what's on your mind about where we're headed. So it's always easier to predict the long-term than the short-term, in part because you don't get held accountable to 20-year predictions. Uh, and there's way more volatility and vicissitudes in markets in the short-term. But there are certain patterns, and it's always cliche to say that if history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. But this feels in biotech like the early 90s in biotech, when there was a nuclear winter. You went from a phenomenon largely driven by COVID and great success in vaccines and sort of a marvel at human ingenuity and the ability to rapidly sequence engineer, manufacture, distribute vaccines and other therapeutics. I think that really inspired people to this quote unquote human ingenuity trade. I think you saw a bursting of capital filling the niches of almost every company that wanted to raise. And what's notable about this is if you look at the FDA, there were very few negative news, like 60 or 70% of news coming out of the FDA over the prior two, three years was positive. And now it's like less than 20%. Why? Because so many crappy companies got funded. And the authority, the regulator is doing what the immune system was intended to do, which is to reject bad science and bad companies. And so it's interesting because it, it raised the cost of capital for talent because so many companies were formed. There was a lot of redundancy. There was a lot of poor science. And I think that that's all shaking out now. You have roughly 800 publicly traded biotech companies. About half of them have less than two years, in some cases, less than a year of cash. And close to 200 of them are trading at negative enterprise value, which means that they are trading for less than the cash on their balance sheet. Now, that's not an insane thing to do because biotechs are not profitable companies. They are burning money. But you have a lot of people that are looking and saying, you know what, if you don't have a year or two of cash, we're not even going to look at you, which is going to further exacerbate that latter correct category. So what I think is likely to happen is consolidation. If you are thinking of joining a biotech company or at a biotech company now, I think there are three criteria for success that will define the dominant, emergent, distinguished winners. The first is a war chest balance sheet. You want to have a lot of cash on the balance sheet that gives you years, not only for your own internal organic operations, but for the ability to opportunistically acquire other assets. The second thing is killer management. You want to have people that are just absolutely incredible who are able to do clever deals. And then the third thing is you want to have supremely celebrated science. You want to have people that are looking and saying, oh my gosh, that is just the envy of the field, whether it's demarcated and protected by intellectual property or whatever it might be. Those three things, having celebrated science, a war chest balance sheet, and killer management teams that could do clever deals are going to be the defining characteristics of the winners in this next phase. I'll give you one example, which is 
Roger Perlmutter, who's a real legend in the industry. We were founding investors of a company called Icon, E-I-K-O-N, around the work of Eric Betzig. Eric was originally looking out into the far reaches of the universe, just like you're seeing you know, some of the new NASA photos that are coming from you know, the Milky Way and far galaxies. And he said, you know, if I actually invert some of this capability, I can look inside of cells and see in real time what is happening when you introduce a drug. And that's pretty wild because, you know, in a almost reductive layman's example, if you were the manager of a 7-Eleven and you just had a before and after photo of opening and closing, 7 a.m. store opens, everything's nicely organized inside the shelves, everything's clean. 7 p.m. there's a dead body on the floor, there's blood everywhere, broken bottles, chips thrown everywhere. The only difference is you have no idea what happened between opening and closing. You just see the aftermath. Many times when we're taking before and after photos of a drug, we don't know the mechanism of action. We don't know how it was metabolized inside the cell. We don't know what the organelles or mitochondria were reacting. We don't know what genes were turned on or off. And so it's really a guesswork patchwork of hypothesis generation experiments. If instead you could actually observe and do single particle tracking, when you introduce a drug, you have a really powerful tool. So that became the basis for ICON. Now, my first naive thought, and I'm glad that it was shot down, was we could sell this microscope for a million dollars a piece. And geez, if we sell a thousand of them, we got a billion dollars of revenue on the top line. Between Eric Betzig and Robert Tietjen, who's the former head of Howard Hughes Medical, uh, was also one of the founders, they were like, no, 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 we're not going to sell this just yet. We're going to use this to discover drugs that nobody has been able to discover and understand the mechanism of action in ways that nobody else has been able to discover. So us and some other venture firms funded the company. We did two rounds and then brought on a CEO. And this was the key thing was, again, celebrated science, check. Now you need killer management that can do clever deals. The guy we brought on was Roger Perlmutter. And Roger was a legend who ran Amgen and Merck R&D and responsible for some of the best-selling drugs in history. Most importantly, I think, is Keytruda. And the guy behind Keytruda is a guy, Roy Baines, in clinical development. That was a drug that in 2014, as you know, was doing 55 million or so of sales. Today is doing you know, $22 billion of sales. It's the closest thing I think we have to a miracle drug in cancer. You know, people with stage three, stage four cancer, you know, basically being um, cancer-free. And Roger came on. I think Roy announced his retirement from Merck on a Wednesday at 9.30 a.m. And later that day at 4.15 after the market had closed or thereabout, Roy announced that he was joining Icon. Roger has assembled this killer team. Now, we funded that company. He said, I'm going to go raise big money. I said, 75, 100, 150 million. He's like, no, no, I'm going to raise half a billion dollars. And he did it in like six weeks. Half a billion dollars at uh, over two and a half billion dollar valuation. We now have 620 million on the balance sheet. And he's going to go out and probably raise another billion dollars. What's he going to do with that? He's going to look at that universe of companies that I was just talking about, those 800 publicly traded biotech companies. And a significant portion of them that had platforms like we were describing earlier are going to have to pare those down because you and I are on a board together and we're saying, we have, we're focused on eight different programs or six different programs. We got to pair those down to one or two. What are you going to do with the other five or six? You're going to mothball them, put them in the attic, maybe divest them, maybe sell them, maybe license them. So clever deal makers from killer management are going to just, I think, absolutely clean up in this consolidation phase. That is the prediction that I would have for the next two years, that a lot of what was funded will fail. Much will be aggregated and consolidated and sort of like the Matthew effect, the big will get bigger. It's an interesting take, Josh. And I think we're certainly starting to see some of that already, right? There's been about, at the time of this recording, there's been about 70 companies that have had layoffs just this year alone. And we're stuck in this somewhat repetitive cycle of companies raising a ton of capital, exactly what you're saying, right? And maybe they shouldn't have, and then hiring very large teams with that capital. But you know, obviously, risk is inherent in everything we do in biotech, and then you end up having a bunch of layoffs, right? And so 
I agree that the best teams are certainly going to win. And I think we also just have to find a better way of not just how we deploy capital from a VC perspective, but also for all these founder-led biotechs, not getting caught up in the glitz of raising around, but remembering that one out of only every 5,000 compounds actually make it to market. So how do you build a sustainable company given that risk? So I think those are great points, Josh. We always like to ask a very simple question, which is how much money accomplishes what in what period of time and who will care? And in biotech, you've got normative milestones, whether it's preclinical, IND, various phases for FDA regulatory approval. Each of those have probabilities associated with it, and you're making explicit trade-offs. I do think that the be-all and end-all is not how much you raised and at what valuation, but what the result of the underlying management of the scientific programs are. And that more so now in a more real, more capital-scarce environment will matter than what was a mostly narrative hype-driven market of the past decade. Yeah, certainly agree, Josh. All right, Josh, to wrap things up, I would love for you to reflect and ask you if there was one piece of advice you could provide your younger self, what would that be? This is a bit idiosyncratic. I always say that people who suffer some sort of early adversity are my favorite kind of people. And it's because I have this quote that chips on shoulders put chips in pockets. I think when you have something to prove for whatever reason, you could have come from a broken family You might have been the only minority in a mostly white homogenous neighborhood. You were the overweight kid, the kid with the lists, the kid that was ostracized. That I generally find that that is a motive force, something that fuels ambition to prove other people wrong, to say, I'll show them. And I think my favorite founders have that. I had that. And the downside of that is you piss some people off along the way. So I probably would give the advice to myself hey, it's good to have the chip on the shoulder, but be a little kinder along the way. You know, Maybe be a little bit conscious of some of the enemies you might make or ripples you might create. Now, I've been very fortunate in that the co-founder of Lux, Peter Hebert, is a wonderful counterbalance to me. Whereas I am generally more attention-seeking and being glorious and ego-driven and have this, he's way more balanced. And uh, people joke that he invented the airplane, always thinking about what could go right. And I invented the parachute always thinking about what can go wrong. And I have this other quote that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. So Pete has always been there to help clean up some of the chaos that I created in my wake. And so I'd I'd say that number one piece of advice, just be mindful because life is long and really treat relationships and the trust that you have between people is super valuable. And the second thing is get yourself an amazing partner, whether that's in life through marriage or as a co-founder of a company, or if you're starting a firm, but have somebody that you admire, you respect, and you trust. And I think you'll have a happy career. Great, Josh. That's wonderful advice. Thanks for joining us today and for sharing your perspective on investing in biotech and what we should be excited about and, and what to look out for. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Same here. Love listening to you and proud to be on. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.